We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And now verse 34 again, adding American Sign Language. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Por lo tanto, no se angustien por el mañana, el cual tendrá sus propios afanes. Cada día tiene ya sus problemas. So, Kaya huwag na kayong mag-alala tungkol sa kinabukasan dahil ang bukas ay may sarili ng alalahanin. Sapat na ang mga alalahaning dumarating sa bawat araw. Donc, ne vous faites pas de souci pour demain. Demain se fera du souci pour lui-même. La fatigue d'aujourd'hui suffit pour aujourd'hui. Takara. Asunotame 
This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for your word that has gone out to the nations, is going out to the nations, and calling all to salvation. A word that is going out to reach every tongue, every tribe, and a, your word that will not stop until every, now, every uh, knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. We thank you for the power of your word, for the way that it gives life, for the way that it gives peace. And we confess, Lord, that all of us in this room are desperate for your peace. Some of us are facing unbearable hardship right now, and we don't know when it will stop some of us are coping with unspeakable grief right now. We don't know where to find comfort. Lord, some of us are just so detached, uh, and the last thing on our mind this morning, even though we're at church, is uh, what you might say to us and how you might work in our lives. God, some of us are not even sure that you exist, and we're surprised to find ourselves at church this morning. And all of us, God, all of us desperately need you. And so we pray that you would speak in your power and your great love through your word to give us a peace that we could find nowhere else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are continuing our sermon series that we're calling The Beautiful Life. And in this series, we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, you can read about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Paul talks about how when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, that it, that it makes you into a beautiful person. And the way that it does that is through these nine fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, but notice that, that fruit of the Spirit is singular, not plural, plural. The Bible doesn't call these the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, the Bible calls these the fruit of the Spirit. They are like different flavor profiles, flavor notes in a beautiful cup of coffee. Are there any coffee lovers here? Uh, do you know what makes a beautiful cup of coffee. And did you know, by the way, that coffee is fruit? We call them coffee beans, but they're actually coffee cherries. Um, what, what makes a beautiful, look it up, look it up, it's a coffee cherry. Right? <laughs> what makes a beautiful cup of coffee is that it actually has complex flavors. You can, if you, if you, if you know what you're looking for, you might in a cup of coffee with nothing added, no cream, no sugar, no nothing, you, you'll, you'll, You'll taste chocolate, you'll taste caramel, you'll taste blueberries, you'll taste peaches, you'll taste all these complex notes. That's what makes a beautiful cup of coffee. And so what God is actually saying when he says that the Spirit creates fruit in our lives is that, that he actually cultivates all these complex flavor notes, love. You become a more loving person, joy. You become a more joyful person, peace. 
You have an ever-growing peace in your life, a peace that is different altogether from the peace that we could find anywhere else in this world. And so we're looking at all these different things that God wants to grow in us in our lives. And peace is something that all of us desperately need. Uh, One study finds that right now, in 2023, we thought that 2022 and 21 and 20 were hard. Right now, workplace burnout is at an all-time high. Uh, And it's especially high with young millennials and Gen Z and women which is incredible that an entire gender is experiencing the same acute burnout as two generations. Uh, There was a podcast just this past week in the New York Times about stress and mental health issues among young people. Uh, It's entitled, Our Obsession with Wellness is Hurting Our Teens and Adults. The American Psychological Association talks about the health risks that are associated with poverty. Poor people have more health problems than people who are comfortable in their, in, in their means. Why? Because poverty is stressful. And it, it creates worry and anxiety. That, and it, it's, it's constantly surrounding your life that, develop, that, that leads to all sorts of health problems. See, Jesus in this passage that we've read today, and especially in this last verse that we read in nine different languages, knows that this world is trouble, and he knows that there are legitimate reasons for every single one of us in this room to be filled with worry. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is realistic about how hard life is, and that's why this verse actually translates so well in all sorts of languages, all sorts of cultures, all sorts of settings, because everyone, no matter how much you have or how little you have, no matter what language you speak, no matter what culture you come from, we all know what it's like to live in a world that is filled with trouble. And Jesus wants us to know that peace is not a luxury for people who are rich or successful. It's actually a spiritual fruit that can be cultivated in anyone and in any circumstance. And we're going to see this as we break down this passage, and we're going to focus on three things. Number one, we're going to look at the the enemy of peace. Number two, we're going to look at the source of peace. And number three, we're going to look at the purpose of peace. So let's start with the enemy of peace. This passage starts with the words, do not worry about your life. And don't don't you wish it was that easy? Don't you wish that all you needed was somebody to tell you, don't worry, and then all your problems would melt away? But, but Jesus actually starts this way because worry is the enemy of peace. And if we could all just stop worrying, we would have so much more peace in our lives. But this is easier said than done. It takes a lot more than saying, don't worry to stop worrying. Imagine that your baby is crying because she's hungry 
and your friend comes up to you and said, says, don't worry, she's going to be fine, right? Life is more than just food. Be at peace. Like, what would you, what would you say to that parent? If you're a good parent, you would say, no, I, I, it's good to worry about my baby who's hungry. A good parent worries when their baby is hungry. What if, what if you are parking your car in Oakland, somewhere in Oakland, and you've got your laptop with you, and your friend says, be at peace. <laughs> Life is more than laptops. Leave your laptop in the car. It's going to be OK. Um, what, what would you say to that friend? Well, would you, would you follow that advice? You shouldn't follow that advice. Right? It's a terrible idea to leave your laptop in your car in Oakland. Uh, you should 1,000% worry about your laptop <laughs> getting stolen. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not worry about your life? What, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear? Jesus is talking about a specific kind of worry. He's saying, don't worry about the things that are out of your control. And you can see this so clearly when you look at the two parables that he tells to teach this to us. In the first parable, Jesus talks about how the birds of the air don't know how to sow or reap or build barns, but they're able to eat anyway. Birds don't know how to farm. They don't plant seeds. They don't harvest fruit. They don't build farms. Worrying about farming will get a bird nowhere because that's beyond their control. That's beyond their capability. They're able to eat, not because of their skill, not because of their hard work, but because God feeds them. In the second parable, Jesus tells us this parable about flowers. He says, see the flowers of the, uh, how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. So he's talking about spinning material to, to create thread, to, to make clothing. He says, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in his splendor was dressed like one of these. Flowers can't sew. They can't design fashion. They, they, they can't create clothing. And yet they are more beautiful the simple beauty of a flower is more beautiful than anything any human being could create. They don't get their beauty from their skill. They don't get their beauty from their creativity. They don't get their beauty from their hard work. They get their beauty from God. Our problem is that we know how to farm. We, we, we know how to sew. We know how to make clothing. We have more control over our lives than birds or lilies do. And so we are under the impression that we're able to control more than we actually can. And what do we do when we are facing something that we cannot control but we are trying to control? We become filled with worry, a worry that controls us a worry that grips us and imprisons us, a worry that makes us overfunction, And that's actually a great way to know whether or not you're worrying about something that you can control or you're worrying about something that you cannot control. Do you overfunction? Do you do more than you should, more than you actually even can? Overfunctioning for some of us might look like doom scrolling 
to learn about a sickness that we've been diagnosed with. It might look like someone who is too pushy in a relationship, who tries too hard to control the relationship. It might look like the inability to accept disappointment. It might look like uh, being overscheduled. There is no room for anything because every minute of our week is accounted for. It might look like being irritable and feeling like no one is on your side. It might look like the inability to be vulnerable with other people. You're always the person to listen to other people's problems, but you have no one to tell your own problems. It might, it might look like being completely depleted, feeling like you have nothing left in the tank. It might look like burnout, actually. It might feel like you have never enough time. It, or it, it, it might look like the feeling, the nagging feeling that peace and quiet is a luxury that you cannot afford. It might, overfunctioning can even look like giving up too easily, which is counterintuitive because you think, like, I'm, if you give up too easily, that means, isn't that underfunctioning? It's actually overfunctioning because did, did you know that procrastination is not the product of laziness but stress? Right? We give up because. We're, we're under the illusion that we can control more than we can, and we're afraid. See, if you say yes to any of these things, then you're just like me, and you are an over-functioner, and you have worry in your life that is beyond your control, and you're trying to, you're, you're trying to act like a bird that can, that can farm or a flower that can sow, and you're putting your hope not in God, but in yourself. So where do we find peace when we're over-functioning? Where do we find peace when we are gripped with worry? This brings us to the second thing we're going to look at here, the source of peace. Jesus concludes each of his parables by saying we are more precious to God than birds or flowers. Verse 26, are you not much more valuable than they, Jesus asks. It's a rhetorical question. Of course, you are more valuable to God than a bird or a flower. See, if the enemy of peace is worrying about things outside of your control, the source of peace is big faith in a big God with big love. Jesus says we worry about these things, these things outside of our control, because we are of little faith. What, is, what does he mean by that? You of little faith. Jesus doesn't say you have little faith. See, he's not saying your problem is that you have doubts. He says you are of little faith. And if, if you could read Greek, and if we read this in the Greek, you would, you would understand that what he's saying is actually really unique. Because in the original New Testament Greek, you of little faith is just one word. It's one word because it's a name. It's a name that Jesus calling, is calling us. It's kind of like when you say to someone, nice try, professor. Right? What, what do we mean when we say that to someone? Nice try, professor. Well, for, for most people, we're, we're not saying you are a professor unless you're talking to one of the professors in our church. We've got a few of them. We're saying actually you're acting like a professor 
but you're not. Nice try, Professor. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you of little faith, you have turned little faith into your identity. You have turned little faith. Your name should be little faith. You've, become, you've turned little faith into a way of living. You have convinced yourself that the faith that you have right now is as big as it's ever going to get. You have settled for living a life of little faith. God is not growing bigger in your life. His love is not growing bigger in your life. It's remaining static. It's staying stuck. And you have become a person of little faith. There's this great scene in the book, um, Prince Caspian, uh, where Lucy meets Aslan, the god godlike lion, the all-powerful lion who created and rules the world of Narnia. And she's reunited with Aslan, hasn't seen him in a long time, and she says, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. And Lucy says, not because, not because you are. And Aslan says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And this is a beautiful picture of actually what our relationship with God should look like. Because God is infinitely big. And the, the more we grow in our faith, the bigger he should become in our life. The bigger his love should become. The bigger his holiness and his beauty should become. The bigger his presence and his power should become. God should be ever growing in our lives. And if God has remained the same size in your life, that could be an indication that you are settling for little faith. You have become a person of little faith. Jesus is saying, don't you realize how God is big? Don't settle for little faith. God is bigger than your need for food. He's bigger than your need for clothes. He's bigger than your need for control. Your heavenly Father knows everything that you need. And there's a big God with big love who has you in his hands, and you can trust him. You could grow out of your bigger, your little faith, and grow into a bigger faith. How do you do that? How do you get unstuck when you have become a person of little faith? This brings us to the last thing we're going to look at today, the purpose of peace. Jesus ends this passage by telling us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The cure to worry, the way to grow in your faith, is to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And I want to close this morning with just three very practical things that we could do to seek God's righteousness and his kingdom first. Number one, the, the way to seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness first is to give credit to the king. Give credit to the king. Jesus says, you are more precious than birds and flowers. Your heavenly Father knows everything that you need. That means everything good in your life right now, everything good in your life that has happened in the past, everything good is from God. Do you give God credit for that? Do you give God credit for all the good things in your life? See, if, if you have trouble 
trusting God, giving God credit when hard things happen in your life, it could, it could be because you've never given him credit for the good things in your life. How are you going to trust God when life feels like it's falling apart if you can't give him credit for all the good that has happened to you? Are you cultivating gratitude in your life? Is the pattern of your life, the posture of your life to look at everything, every gift in your life and give God credit, give God glory, give God thanks? Give credit to the king. Second thing uh, that you could do to seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness first is to care about the things that the king cares about. Jesus tells us to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And notice, notice Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about what, what other people eat. Don't worry about what other people wear. He says, don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about what you will wear. Jesus is not against all worry. He's against selfish worry. What does God care about? He cares about you, and he cares about the people sitting next to you, and he cares about the people outside this church. He cares about the people of Oakland. He cares about your neighbors, your coworkers. He cares about your enemies. Do you care about the things that the king cares about? Do you care about whether other people have food to eat? Do you care about whether other people have clothes to wear? Do you care about the things that the king cares about? Do you know the heart of the king? Do you know how he cares for this world, how he cares for people who are broken? Do you know how he loves the poor and the oppressed? Do you know how he loves his enemies? Do you know how he put himself last in order to put you first? Care about the things that the king cares about. And here's the last thing I'm, I'm going to give you this morning. Make the king's love and power the center of your life. Make the king's love and power the center of your life. When Jesus says, all these things will be given you, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to give you whatever you want. Seek my kingdom, and I'm going to give you the car that you want. I'm going to give you the house that you want. I'm going to give you the spouse that you want. He's not saying that. What Jesus is saying, he can't be saying that because Jesus didn't get everything that he wanted. Remember in Matthew 26, Jesus is in the garden, and he's begging his father that this cup, the cup of the cross, the, the poison cup of the cross, would, that, that if it said, all possible, let this pass for me, he said, and yet not my will, but your will be done. See, when you seek first the kingdom, it doesn't mean that you get everything that you want. It means that you get God, and in God you possess everything. You possess everything. You see, God does not love you because of the things that you do for him. He loves you despite of all the ways that you forget him, all the ways that you neglect him, all the ways that you go the opposite direction from him, all the ways that you break his heart. He loves you despite your selfishness. He loves you despite your little faith. He doesn't love you because of what you do for him. He loves you because he loves you. And this is the greatest miracle of all. The greatest miracle of all is not inner peace 
or even peace with other people, or even peace in our city, the greatest miracle of all is that any of us can have peace with God. See, when, when the essence of sin is to de- declare war against God, and you might be thinking, hold on, I, I, I've never declared war against God, but that's all sin is. Sin is saying, God, I want to be in control. I don't want you to be in control. I want to get what I want. I don't want you to get what you want. Sin is simply a declaration of war against God, and yet when God sees us declare war on him, he's not filled with anger. He's filled with compassion and mercy and love, and he invites us. He invites us through the way of peace that he alone could make by sending Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrates his love. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when you get this into your heart, it creates a peace that is bigger than anything else. You begin to see the miracle that you have peace with God, and the greater that miracle is to you, the greater the peace will be inside you and around you. This this is a peace that needs to grow. And it's able to grow because the greater our sin is, the greater God's love and his mercy is. And you you will cultivate a peace that is bigger than any circumstance, a peace that is for any person. Some of us have enemies. We have people who have hurt us. But when you get this this miracle of peace with God into your heart, you're able to let go of grudges and you're able to forgive because if God could forgive a sinner like you, how could you not forgive someone else who has sinned against you? This gives you a peace that is bigger than any circumstance because if you have peace with God, if the God who should turn his back on you loves you and calls you his son or daughter, then whatever trouble you are facing, you can know that you are loved and the God who is in control is going to use whatever is happening to you for your good. In 1905, Sevilla Martin wrote the hymn, His Eye is on the Sparrow. And the story behind this song is really beautiful. Uh, she, she wrote this song after visiting her good friends, Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle. Mrs. Doolittle was bedridden with a severe illness for 20 years. And her husband, Mr. Doolittle, was disabled and uh, was, was confined to a wheelchair. And as they were visiting their friends, uh, Sevilla and, and her husband asked them, how, do you, how is it that you are able to remain so positive? You don't let things get you down. You're always so positive. And Mrs. Doolittle answered, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. The next day she wrote this hymn, Why Should I Feel Discouraged? Why? Should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is his. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, 
and I know he watches me. Do you know that God's eye is on the sparrow? And do you know that he watches you? And that, do you know that he loves you? And do you know that he has made peace with you? And do you know that the worst thing that can happen to you is eternal glory with your God who loves you and has saved you and is making you new and who's coming again to make all things new. That's what this table represents. This table is a preview, a preview of a greater feast to come. This table is a pledge and promise then that when this life is over, there is a never-ending eternal feast waiting for you in heaven. This table is a pledge and promise that one day you will eat with Jesus and you will feast with him. And it will not be the end of your story, but the beginning of your story. A story of getting to know a God who is bigger than you could have ever dreamed or imagined, who loves you with a love that is bigger than you could have ever dreamed or imagined. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this table, a table that we share with one another, <clears throat> a table that we share with brothers and sisters all over the world. And God, uh, we pray that whether it is for the first time or one more time, that you would help us to take these in and taste and see of your goodness to us and your great love for us, that you would heal the wounds that we bring to you, that you would mend our hearts that are broken, and Lord, that you would give us your presence in a way that transforms us and unites us with Jesus and fills us with anticipation and hope and love and joy and peace. That, that we would be so loved by God who is so great and that we, that we would see him with our own eyes and feast with him one day. God, we thank you for these gifts and we give you glory for them and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.